Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. A little recap for you. Saul of Tarsus, as we've learned over these weeks, was a young zealous Pharisee of Pharisees, born into a Pharisee family, who grew up in a multicultural city, that being Tarsus, a Roman citizen who spoke multiple languages. You're going to see that in action tonight in one of the, the, the best Lucan detailed accounts you will read anywhere in the book of Acts. Uh, there was only one place for such a talented young man such as that, and that was Jerusalem the center of the Jewish religion and cultural life. He moves there sometime in his early 20s and becomes a student of the great first century Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. He becomes a firebrand. He is as sincere as he can be, a true believer. He thinks he is doing God's will by arresting and killing and persecuting early followers of Jesus. We would certainly regard him as an extremist uh, of the most extreme kind today. Yet in his heart of hearts, his conscience is clear. He felt like he was on God's side. And his life and his life experience thus far had, in, had informed him so. Saul is confronted by the risen Christ on his way to Damascus. N.T. Wright, Wright thinks he was possibly following a tradition in the first century of meditating on Ezekiel chapter 1. And everything about him, his outlook on life, his theology is redirected. And after a roundabout of several years, he has settled back in Tarsus. He's now in his early 30s, and he will be there for a decade. As more and more Gentiles become followers of the way, Barnabas, his friend, brings Saul to Antioch, where he will take the lead role in the book of Acts and become the primary figure in first century Christianity. He's in his early to mid-40s, and Paul, as he is now referring to himself, begins his missionary career making three epic journeys across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and into Europe, and over the course of 10 or 12 years is planting churches and writing letters that would in time become regarded as Scripture. And on these journeys, planting these churches and writing these letters, I began with three assumptions that we talked about six weeks ago. Assumption number one was that Paul's main theological argument is that God is creating a new humanity in Christ. Gentiles, Jews, Romans, Greeks, men, women, slave, free, this barrier-breaking community-building movement. The Reformers, 500 years ago, recaptured, recovered what we would call justification by grace through faith, and that was a leading argument of the, of the reformers, and it needed to be recovered. But Paul's main theological movement is this new humanity. The second assumption that Paul was more mystic than theologian, and we've seen a lot of experiences where he's had visions and dreams and 
close encounters of uh, the spiritual kind, and it has shaped his journeys and his life. And third, Paul's pro-Christ position was very much an anti-Roman imperialism position. Paul intentionally chose the cities that he preached in because every one of them was a center for Roman propaganda. And so when Paul comes to town preaching Jesus is Lord, which sounds so harmless today, he was saying Caesar is not. And that always got him in trouble. Yes, sir. Those are my assumptions. Yeah, on this study. Because, because if you... Others would tackle the, the subject of Paul with a whole different set of criteria. And they would say that their assumption would be that Paul's theological, the main piece of, of Paul's theological uh, teaching is justification by faith. And so that would be the lens they would look through. I'm simply saying that I'm looking through a little bit different lens as, as it relates to this study. Good question. Very good question. And so we have arrived at circa 57 A.D., Paul is in his early 50s, and as someone who populates that age myself, he is not old, but he's getting a whole lot older every day, given the mileage that he has put on this odometer that belongs to him. And he comes to Jerusalem at the conclusion of this third missionary journey, coming to Jerusalem for the last time. And this third, third journey, by his account in 2 Corinthians, was the most difficult one of his life. And tonight, we're going to cover the largest single section of the book of Acts so far. Uh, the last eight chapters. Luke is back. And we'll see exactly when he, he, he... Of course, he's writing all of this. But you will see exactly tonight when he rejoins the eyewitness account. And... There is a light year jump in details provided when Luke joins the party. He is not relying upon other accounts. He's relying upon what he himself experiences. I'll tell this story tonight, narrative form. Uh, think about four different scenes, four different acts, uh, four different chapters. And I'm talking about Bible chapters. Just if we, we have a short storybook here tonight with four chapters. Paul in Jerusalem, chapter 1. Paul in Caesarea, chapter 2, Paul in transit, chapter 3, and Paul in Rome, chapter 4, but a very short chapter, that last one, yes. So let's get right to it and talk about Paul in Jerusalem. Paul's arrival in Jerusalem picks up at Acts 21, verse number 17, and carries on for the balance of that chapter through Acts 23. And I'll read a little bit of what happens. When we arrived at Jerusalem. Now note, we. Luke, Paul picked him up somewhere when he was back in Europe. And he's come home with Paul all the way back to Jerusalem. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. This is the church there at Jerusalem. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. This James is the leader, the de facto leader of the Jerusalem church. James, the brother of Jesus. We have no information that Simon Peter is there. He has flown the coop. He is somewhere in this big world, maybe Asia Minor, maybe himself 
on his way to Rome. Verse 19, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. They get the full account. Probably not just of his third missionary journey, but a summary of all three of his missionary journeys. But then there is this immediate concern that the elders in Jerusalem have that Paul being there was going to cause them trouble. Paul is always too hot to handle when he comes to Jerusalem. And there was this rumor circulating that Paul was out there in the great big world breaking Jewish custom and telling Jews everywhere to forsake their heritage. That's the rumor that is circulating. They are taking his preaching to the Gentiles and they are... uh, bringing that over into Jewish life, and they're saying that Paul is up to no good and nefarious ways to to undermine Judaism. So this is the idea that Jewish elders come up with. They say, Paul, we got this group of guys, and they're going up to the temple to complete a purification rite. If you go back to the book of Numbers, go back to Levitical law, this was a common thing. Maybe they had made some sort of vow to God And in the process of this vow, they had become unclean. Now that could have been, there's a hundred different ways for that to happen. So in order to uh, reset the vow, in order to get a clean slate, you went up to the temple and you made a sacrifice and offered your prayers. And so they say this to Paul. These guys are going up to the temple in a few days. And they're going to renew their vow. You go with them. And renew your vow, as is the Jewish custom. And let some of these troublemakers in town, because we know they're going to find out you're here. Let them see you go into the temple. And they will understand that you are a good practicing Jew. Paul says, that sounds good. So Paul does that. And then, this takes about a week. You go and you make your, your first offering and the priest would say, come back in a week. Take two aspirin, call me in the morning, that sort of the thing. Come back in a week and it would be completed. That second week is almost complete when we read here in Acts 21 verses 27 and 28. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place, this place being the temple. Jews from Asia. Where do you think these people are from? Take a guess. Ephesus. These people will not leave Paul alone. Whatever happened in Ephesus, uh, and I presume that that Paul, in spending two years there, some of that time was against his will. He writes in 2 Corinthians as he escapes the city that he had faced the trial of his life. He's despondent. He's uh, he's been beat down. When he's on his way back home, 
Remember, he won't even set foot inside the city. And Paul's not afraid of anybody. Not so far. He hasn't been afraid of anything. But he is not getting near Ephesus again. He makes those poor elders at the church at Ephesus walk 60 miles. If you want to see me, this is as close as I get. And they walk 60 miles to see him and to wish him farewell. And when he tells them goodbye, he says, none of you will ever see my... Y'all ain't going to see my butt around here ever again. He's not going back. You're not gonna, I'm not going to see you. You're not going to behold my face ever again. And it breaks their hearts, but he's not going back there. He gets back to the temple, and it's the same, largely the same folks. They are there for uh, a holiday or a celebration of some point, and they grab hold of him, and he has not been in Jerusalem hardly two weeks, and Paul is the center of a riot right on the temple mount, on the temple grounds, in the heart of Judaism. Bedlam and chaos ensue. They are beating him to death. The crowd is. And they cause such a panic that the Roman commander gets involved. We find out that his name is Claudius. I was talking to Mickey a few weeks ago. Everybody, Mickey, is named Julius or Claudius or something. All the names pile up after a while. This guy is named Claudius. And the Greek word for commander here means a thousand. So he has a full regiment at his disposal. And he is in charge of the regiment over the Jewish temple and the city of Jerusalem. And he is stationed in the fortress of Antonia. Can we get that slide, please? Nope. That's Caesarea. That one right there. So you have this printed on your page as well. This is the Jewish temple as it would have been in the first century. Uh, here is the western wall. This wall remains standing today known as the Wailing Wall. It is the only piece of Herod's temple that remains intact. Uh, the the uh, Islamic mosque sits here on top of the Temple Mount. In the time of Paul, the disturbance would have happened in the, in the temple here as they begin to beat him. The text says they close the gates. That means, it's the same thing that happens today, by the way. Uh, I've been to the Holy Land a few times now, and on one trip, we could not go up to the Temple Mount because there had been violence on the Temple Mount. And, and this is really bizarre, but this little entryway right here, there's now a set of stairs that you enter the Temple Mount in this exact same place, and there's massive metal detectors right there. You empty all your pockets. Uh, you might even be strip searched. And just as you get inside, there's just stacks and stacks of riot gear. And it's just waiting. If there's a problem, the riot police show up. It's been that way on the Temple Mount, obviously, for 2,000 years. So, in Paul's day, the riot patrol is here in the Antonia Fortress. The Antonia Fortress was built by Herod the Great. He's also the one who built the temple. He names it Antonia after his patron, Mark Antony. See, that? these guys, they're just everywhere. And it can house, at the time, a thousand Roman soldiers. The commander... Or, you know, one of his lookouts. These four towers, they had a view of the entire temple complex. 
And so when Paul's here starting to get the light and the daylights beat out of him, word gets to the commander that there's a riot on the temple grounds and the soldiers come streaming down this stairwell right here onto the temple grounds and to protect Paul, they arrest him and get him away from the crowd. The crowd is so vicious with him, they have to like mosh pit him and carry him up to these stairs to keep him from being killed. And, you know, hopefully you've never seen anything like that live, but if you've seen any news footage where there's a riot and the police are there with their riot shields, think exactly that's the phalanx of the Roman army, what they would have done. Surround the prisoner, drop their shields, gather him to themselves, and then take him into the fortress. Uh, questions? We're about to get into something interesting that Paul does here. Any questions? It was already in place. A post, uh, the question is, was Paul the founder of the Ephesian church? It's already in place when Paul arrives there, likely the product of the Pentecost. Mm -hmm. And that's many years later, so it's even decades later. Uh, Paul is, is really, as much as he was hated at Ephesus by the people there, He's still breaking the ground and planting the seeds that would grow to fruition. And his, John would, would become a pastor there, as would Timothy. Tradition says that Paul's closest associate, Timothy, would end up at Ephesus. And as I said last, last week, there's a tradition that Mary, the mother of Jesus, died at Ephesus. A long-standing tradition. Um, here's what happens, and it is... I would love to see the movie scene made out of this. They're carrying Paul up these steps into the fortress. The crowd has gone crazy. They're trying to kill him. The Roman commander and his Roman soldiers speak Latin and Greek. And they have no idea what the crowd is fighting about. They're all speaking Aramaic. Any soldier who has ever served overseas, particularly in a combat area, and trouble erupts, the most important person is the interpreter. What is being said? What is being done? If there's a language barrier. There is a massive language barrier here. The crowd screaming Aramaic, Roman soldier, didn't understand anything that's going on. They just know that Paul's causing all this trouble because they're just beating him to death. They get Paul up on the stairs and Paul turns to the commander and says, <clears throat> could I have a word with you? And he says it in Greek. And the Roman commander stops. And he says, you, you speak Greek? And he says, I do. And then the Roman commander reveals something. He says, I thought you were that Egyptian terrorist. That led 4,000 of your compatriots out onto the Mount Olives, but you escaped. Paul said, nope, that's not me. I'm just, I'm just a guy from Tarsus. And uh, 
And Josephus tells us that about five years before these events, there was this Egyptian shaman guy who showed up in Jerusalem. He gathered up about 5,000 of his followers. They went out on the Mount of Olives like it was going to be the end of the world. The Roman garrison from Antonio streamed out because they were causing so much trouble and there was a slaughter across that mountainside. But the Egyptian rebel rouser escaped. I don't know if... If this Roman commander was there when that happened, but he certainly has a memory of it, and he thinks he's got the guy. Paul says, nope, that's not me. And then Paul says, can I have a word with the crowd? Try to calm them down. And the commander says, basically, knock yourself out. Paul then transitions from that Greek, and maybe even a little Latin, with the Roman soldiers, and turns to the crowd And he addresses them, Acts 22, 1, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So here's here's the, the learned Paul, the multilingual Paul. He's spoken to the Roman commanders in their language. Now he turns to the crowd and speaks to them in Aramaic. And for almost the entire chapter of Acts 22, that Luke in detail, Paul recounts his life. He gives them his testimony. Like, you know, an old Baptist style, I'm on his testimony service time. He talks about his upbringing. He talks about his conversion. He talks about his complicity in the death of Stephen just yards away from where he is standing. They hang on every word until he gets to his mission to the Gentiles. And you pick it up at Acts 22, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted. Now listen to him. Rid the earth of this man. He is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks he directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. You got the scene? None of these poor Roman dolts spoke Aramaic. They have no idea why this crowd is trying to kill Paul. So the commander says, well, we'll just flog it out of him. Flog is a soft way to say that they were going to scourge Paul in the same manner as which Jesus was scourged on Good Friday morning. They were going to take a cat of nine tails, bend Paul over a stump, and beat him to the point of killing him, that he would tell what they wanted to hear. We pick up at verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, you know, is this legal to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, the centurion is a junior officer. The commander has a thousand men at his disposal. The centurion has a hundred When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul says, I was born a citizen. 
It's the highest ace card that you can play. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. That wily old Apostle Paul. Remember back in Philippi that he let them, he took the beating? Do you remember? He took the beating in a Roman city and they let him, he let them throw him in jail and only the next morning did he say, I'm a Roman citizen and look what y'all have done to me. He did that to get leverage. Because he, he had a long-term vision there in the city of Philippi. Not here. He is not going to take that flogging. That one might have killed him. And so, he waits again to that beautiful moment. And he says, um, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. It changes everything. So here Paul is, can speak Aramaic, can speak the Greek, plays the card that I'm a Roman citizen, and it saves his life. And it could have gotten Paul off the hook entirely. But the next day, Paul is required to stand before the Sanhedrin. So just as, and I think Luke does this, on, on, does this purposefully. Can we go back to Herod's temple in the Antonio Fortress? So this area behind the Antonio Fortress... It's not on, your, on the map, the pool of Israel. This area was the praetorium where when the Roman governor came to town, it was his house. And this is where Jesus' trial before Pilate took place around this corner. And it was soldiers from the Antonia that flogged and mocked Jesus. The Sanhedrin live, their, their place, their quarters is across town. Paul is going to be taken there. And I think Luke does this on purpose. Luke brings in the same Roman soldiers that mocked Jesus. And now Paul will stand before the Sanhedrin. The same council that handed Jesus over to the Romans for crucifixion. Paul talks a lot about sharing in Christ's sufferings. And Luke is constructing this on purpose, intentionally, to show that Paul is on the same path that Jesus was on. And he goes before the Sanhedrin. And this was the ruling elite. Half of them are Sadducees. Half of them or so are Pharisees. They run this temple complex. The high priest is a puppet of the Roman government. The high priest is in bed with the Romans. The high priest was a man named Ananias. Not the same one, not the same Ananias who gave Paul back his sight in Damascus. But that's his name. He ruled about uh, 58 or so AD. And this is how Josephus describes Ananias. A violent, haughty, gluttonous, and rapacious man. Not a great reputation. And he was so much in Rome's pocket that when the Roman and Jewish war broke out about a decade later, his own people assassinated him. So he is a corrupt, ugly man. And he will preside over the trial. Uh, a, a, a funny thing happens, though. Paul opens his mouth as the trial begins. How we, how, you know, we, we can have trouble with our justice system, but imagine this. 
Paul gets the first sentence out of his mouth about why he's on trial, and the high priest has somebody punch him right in the face. Slap him right in the mouth. Because the high priest didn't agree with the assumption that he had made. And Paul really ticks Paul off. And Paul responds, you whitewashed wall. God is going to strike you for striking me. And everybody starts clutching their pearls. Oh, how could you talk to the high priest like that? And Paul's response is loaded with sarcasm. He said, oh, I didn't know it was the high priest that was talking. And it's sarcasm because it was Paul's way of saying that Ananias was not a proper priest or duly in that office that he was a Roman puppet. So his trial is just off to a marvelous start. But he's smart, and he blows the whole trial to bits and pieces. When it is time for him to give his full defense, he says in front of that group, I am on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. And as soon as he said that, the trial is over. Why? Any guesses? The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees do. Paul succeeded in one sentence in hanging the jury. And they are unable. In fact, some of the Pharisees come to Paul's immediate defense. And again, the poor Roman commander has to snag Paul again, take him away. Uh, There's a plot that's uncovered. Some of the people are still so hell-bent on on murdering Paul that they want to assassinate him the next day. Paul's nephew, who lives in Jerusalem, gets word of this, takes this message to the Roman commander, and the commander has had enough. He packages Paul up with a Roman cavalry unit, and he transfers him to Caesarea. We'll talk about Caesarea specifically in just a minute. A hundred miles away, out of the city, where nobody can get to him. And all of that takes place in about two weeks. An adventurous two weeks to come back to Jerusalem. Quickly, questions? Uh, at, th- at this time, Nero is the emperor. Nero comes to power in 54. Nero. And we'll talk about the meaning of that phrase here in just a minute as well. The question was about Paul's appeal to Caesar. And we'll get to that. You whitewashed wall. It's not nice. Uh, he, he basically is using, and again, Luke does this on purpose. This is the exact phrasing Jesus used. You brood of vipers. Outside you are a whitewashed wall, inside you are full of dead men's bones. A whitewashed wall, in this case, was a grave, a sepulcher. You kept it nice and clean and painted white, but inside it was full of dead bodies. Yeah. Paul says, you're a hypocrite. Yeah, you hypocrite. Because he's so pious sitting in that chair to judge Paul brought to him by the Romans, and this guy is owned by the Romans. And everybody knows it. I mean, and this guy would be dead in a matter of years. Assassinated. Murdered by his own people. He was so corrupt. So Paul knew the score. 
Again, get the human element of this man. And get beyond the, you know, this, this great biblical scholar. Of course he is that. But he is as savvy as a fox. He is smart. And he knows how to navigate all these political twists and turns that he's now in and he will be in for the next several years. Good question. Other questions? We're going to get Paul to Caesarea then. Acts 24, verse number 1, and following into Acts 26, all the way to verse 32. Paul comes to Caesarea. Caesarea Maritime is the official title because it's by the sea. There was another Caesarea inland known as Caesarea Philippi, and it was built by the Herods. You remember the whole Antonio, can we get the slide of Caesarea and we'll talk about it in just a second. Do you remember the Antonio Fortress? Who is it named after? Mark Anthony. Herod built it to honor his patron, Mark Anthony. That means this. When Julius Caesar was assassinated and war broke out, it led to a series of wars about who was going to become the next Roman ruler. Herod put his money on Mark Antony. And he built that fortress in Jerusalem to honor Mark Antony. Well, our boy Octavius, Octavian, who would become Caesar Augustus, kills Mark Antony in battle. Well, he doesn't really kill him. He escapes and Mark Antony commits suicide with Cleopatra. You know the whole love story. And when Herod realized, oh, what have I done? He came out here to the coast and built Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar. And basically said, oh, I'm, you know, I built Antony just this little, this little bitty fort. You know, I'm going to build you an entire city. And he got himself back into the good graces of Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesarea became the headquarters for all of Roman Palestine. From Syria in the north to Sinai in the south and east all the way uh, to the desert. I want you to look at this. You've, you've got it printed on paper and, and it's here. Is Caesar Augustus reigned all the way to 14 AD. Yeah, but this city's been in, been in place. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So... Up here, in this upper right-hand corner, is one of the best, well-preserved Roman theaters anywhere in the world. Susan, me and you, Susan, Garrett, me, Susan, and Garrett have stood in this theater. And it is in such good shape, they still do plays and musical recitals there. It's it's marvelous. It has a floor that they could have that they would often flood and have mock sea battles in it, just like the Colosseum in Rome. It is it is a work of art. And then here, this whole complex is the Hippodrome. Uh, ben Hur, the horse races with the chariots. That's what they did right here. This is a massive complex. Here, this little area was Herod's palace. And this little box right here was his personal and private swimming pool that was fed and flooded by the Mediterranean Sea. 
right here, this little box. You can just see the remnants of it. But his palace took this whole area here. This is an artificial harbor that it probably took 50,000 slaves who probably died doing this work. All these dark areas that you see are collapses of seawalls and the city itself. It was destroyed over time by successive earthquakes and the city just slid into the sea. So that's why, why you see these shadows, but you still see the, the deep water here. And this harbor here could be, was completely encircled with an actual lock here for the ships to come in. And then here inside this Roman, inside this red circle was the actual Roman headquarters and a temple to the divine Augustus built by Herod himself on what used to be Israeli soil. How do you think that went over? Uh, and also inside this circle, the next slide of the uh, pilot. No. That is the original temple site of the, uh, of, uh, to, to uh, the divine Augustus in Caesarea. And then you've got this as well. This is an imperium sign, uh, imperium word in Latin. And this word right here is Pontius Pilate. This stone was recovered inside that red circle at Caesarea in 1961. It is the only known inscription of Pontius Pilate's, Pilate's name found anywhere in the world. But this would have been, go back to slide if you would, Garrett. Pilate would have lived right here. So it's pretty, uh, pretty fascinating stuff. He was a Roman governor over Roman Palestine. Uh, so it's a massive, beautiful city. Uh, and if we could go, if I was all the way back over here, there's this wonderful, uh, and it's like, look here, see how far it goes? Uh, there's this wonderful aqueduct that goes all the way up and captures rain off the mountains of Mount Hebron. It runs for miles, and much of it is still, still in place. It's a national park uh, right there in Israel now. Just beautiful. Now, Paul, when he arrives in Caesarea, is taken to Herod's palace. Herod's dead, long dead by this time. He's taken to Herod's palace, and that's where he was imprisoned and held uh, when he first came to Caesarea. It takes about five days for the uh, high priest to get his uh, act together, realizing that Paul has escaped his snatches. And so he and a few others come down to Caesarea from Jerusalem and they hold a trial before the Roman governor there. This Roman governor's name is, I've got to find it here, because there's Felix and there's Festus. Let me make sure I get them in, in, in line. Uh, Felix is the first one. He stands trial before Felix. And you remember the ellipse? I said that it's possible that Paul wrote his, his prison epistles from uh, Ephesus. Well, there's just as much evidence to say that Paul would be here for two years in Herod's palace over there with a great view of a swimming pool, by the way. But it's possible that Paul wrote the prison epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon here 
not at Ephesus. That's a possibility as well. Uh, Felix hears him, uh, listens to what he has to say, and Felix is actually moved by what the Apostle Paul says to the point of like, is this man going to convert to following Jesus? And then Felix sends him away. Uh, the Romans and the Sanhedrin are in cahoots together to keep the Sanhedrin happy. Felix leaves Paul in prison for two years there uh, in Caesarea. He is then followed. Felix gets recalled back to Rome because of his corruption. Almost loses his head. Nero almost executes him because his corruption is so bad and only his brother saves his life. And then a new Roman governor, governor arrives. His name is Festus. Acts 26 verse number 9. Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on those charges? Now, Festus is the new guy in town. He has just succeeded a very corrupt Roman governor. And he's trying to make friends, trying to sort out the power brokers that are on the ground there. And his first effort is, hey, I'll try to make all these uh, rambunctious uh, political Jews in Jerusalem happy. So I tell you what, I'll bring Paul back to Jerusalem and we'll have a trial there. That's why he asked Paul this question. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Again, Paul is no fool. He knows if they take me back to Jerusalem, I'll never get out alive. If this trial is held on their turf, in their town, I'll be found guilty and handed over to them, or there'll be another assassination plot and they'll murder me in the street. Paul is a Roman citizen, exercises a right that all Roman citizens of the day had. He appealed to a higher court. He appeals all the way to Caesar. Does this mean that every Roman citizen who appealed to Caesar got to go stand in Nero's palace? Of course not. But it meant that your adjudication moved up the ladder. You were transferred to Rome to a higher court that would review your case and determine whether or not you were guilty or innocent. That's what Paul does here. They are the procreators or the Roman governors, depending upon. They have the same job as Pontius Pilate. So as Pontius, Pontius Pilate... Felix and Festus all have the same, they're all political appointees ruling over Roman administrators over uh, Roman Palestine. Questions? So two, two and a half weeks or so in Jerusalem... Two years in Caesarea. And finally, 
we get into Acts 27. You have a map of Paul's journey there to Rome. If we can see that one, Gary. So all the trouble starts way down here in this bottom corner. Jerusalem goes to Caesarea. When it's time to sail, they leave Caesarea, hop up the, course, up the coast to Sidon. By the way, Sidon is as far north as Jesus ever traveled. And then around Cyprus to Myra, north of Rhodes. And then they drop below Crete. And this journey from Caesarea to Crete, so why didn't they just do this? Well, they're resupplying, they're picking up supplies. You have a, a brutal, at the time of year, and we'll talk about the time of year they're trying to sell, a brutal west wind. So they're staying close to the course, to the coast, and using these islands to get out of the wind and still try to make uh, some headway. Luke says, uh, we, in Acts 27. So Luke has been observing, and now Luke is on the boat with Paul. And the, the we account begins. You also have, and I'll come back to this map, Garrett, in just a, a moment. Could we go to the, to the ship? I gave you actually a, a few of them here. The one on the top here is a recorrect correction where it says stern and bow on the mainsail. This was an Alexandrian style, Egyptian style grain ship. And so when they leave Caesarea, they get up to the lower half of Asia Minor and the centurion in charge makes a transfer. Takes Paul off this smaller boat and puts Paul on a large granary ship. Now that you've seen these ships, this one, this one here, by the way, is actually in uh, Jerusalem. It's very small. It's just a small model, but it is a scale recreation. And then this is a larger one. It's still small, but built the same way as these Egyptian ships would have been. Paul's ship has nearly 300 people on it and the cargo. Massive ship. Can we go back to the uh, map, please? So they make the transfer here at Myra, and they put Paul on an Egyptian grain, grain ship. So here's Egypt, which was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. All of these ships come north to Myra to resupply, and then they make the run to, to Italy. So it wouldn't have been unusual at all to find this, this grain ship. And they set out, and we'll pick it up at Acts 27.8, and it says, We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Haven. Fair Havens is here on the south side of Crete. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul, this is the only place in Acts where Paul gets kind of preachy. Where it's like, mm, 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 told you so. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. And bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. This owner of the ship wants to get to Rome as quick as he can. Why? I got to get paid. Yeah, I got to get paid. And if I, can, if I can shoot through this window just before winter arrives, that's an extra paycheck this year. So he's going to try to make this run. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, 
hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. Do I have the slide of, of uh, Fair Havens to, to Phoenix? You have it printed on your uh, paper, I think. Do you? If, you? if you look at that one, I just took that picture right out of, my, out of my favorite study Bible because it tells the picture best. If you look... Ah, oh, here we go. It's right here. This picture right here. If you look at that, it is less than 100 miles from Fairhaven to Phoenix. And they're going to make that little run, deep harbor there, get us a hundred more miles, and when the weather's springtime comes, we'll be in good shape. I'm told, I don't know anything about this, that in ancient times, the safe sailing season is June 1st to mid-September. If you deviate 30 days either direction, you might be okay. You certainly can't sail the Mediterranean in ancient times trying to go west uh, on a sailboat in the wintertime. The Day of Atonement is mentioned in the account. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is a movable feast on the Jewish calendar. It always falls in the Roman calendar, our calendar, our Gregorian calendar today, sometime between September 14th and October 14th. So when Luke tells us it's already past the Day of Atonement, we might be as late as late October or, or early November. But this captain and pilot say, we're going to go for it. And Paul said, mm, better not, better not. And in fact, when the ship breaks to pieces on the island of Malta, here in just a minute, Paul's standing on the deck with the hurricane blowing saying, I told you, I told you. Uh, he really does. He really gets preachy there. But you see how close they are to Phoenix? And they cannot... For the love of anything, get that ship to harbor. And they are blown west and south across the Mediterranean in a hurricane-like storm for 14 days. And they crash on a little island called Malta. And it's probably a good thing or they might have got blown all the way out into the Atlantic. So at Malta, they all survive. They wash ashore. Paul is there gathering up firewood and going to build a fire and get warm. All the natives of the island come out. They're all welcoming and happy that they're alive and they're helping them. Paul's picking up firewood and gets bit by a viper. Poor guy. And all the islanders say, oh, karma got him. They basically said he escaped the storm, but the gods didn't let him get away. Now he's going to die of a snake bite. And they watch him. He just shook the snake off like St. Patrick of Ireland, into the fire and kept going. No ill effects. Then they said, this guy must be a god. That happened in, in the, where, where, where did that happen at? Derby? Leicester? That happened in Leicester. You know, they tried to worship him as a god. He starts healing the sick, healing the leading citizen of, of the town. They spend three months there. They let winter come. And then when spring comes, they make the short run to the to Sicily, then to the toe 
of Italy and then make their final run up to Rome. It is 60 AD. It's taken roughly three years for all of this to transpire. It's a good, it's a good point of reference for all of Paul's journeys. They all seem to take about three years each. With some uneven breaks between them. And this journey that should have taken, from, from what I've read, they said this journey from Sidon to Rome in that time should have taken about 30 to 40 days. It took them months, maybe even six months. We don't know how, we don't know how much trouble they had, how long it took to get from here to here. This journey is of an unknown length of time, just that it took a long time. Because the prevailing winds were in their face. Malta, they were in Malta on that island for three months. They wintered on Malta. They had to get in. In fact, they did not repair the ship at Malta. They, they caught another Alexandria grain ship on its way to Rome in springtime. You think about the owner and pilot of that ship that said, we're going to go for it. Because they can get, make that extra paycheck, you know, this year. We'll get two checks this Mm, lost it all. I doubt that there was a whole lot of traveling insurance in those days. The risk is all out there. He's not a prisoner, but he's allowed to travel with Paul. Acts 28, 15 through 30, 15 little tiny verses, Paul comes to Rome. And the book of Acts is anticlimactic in its ending. Paul arrives. There are some Jesus followers who meet him there. He reasons with the Jews there who have no knowledge of all of the troubles that he's had. He tells them about this new humanity that is coming that the Gentiles hear of God's salvation and believe. And then Luke ends the book like this. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. One more parenthesis. Paul might have wrote those prison letters in Ephesus. Paul might have written those prison letters at Caesarea. Paul might have written those prison letters in Rome. He is there under house arrest for two years. Luke ends the story of Paul like this intentionally even, uh, even, if, even if Luke put all of this together later, knowing more than he told us, even if he knows about Paul's eventual death, he ends the book of Acts this way for two reasons. Number one, Paul has prevailed. He is going to leave Paul healthy and well after all of the trials that he has had. Uh, Renting his own house, having a bit of autonomy, and doing what he had been called to do. But the second reason, and the main reason that Paul is left in this position in Rome, is that Luke wants to show us that Christianity, in the person of the, of the most critical individual in the first century of Christianity, Christianity has made its way to the heart of the empire. And that this Christianity will in time undo the entire Roman Empire. And that's, even though more happens in Paul's life, and we'll talk about that next week, uh, this is where 
Luke leaves things. One more slide. These were uncovered in, I think there's one more slide. Did I include one more slide? No. I didn't include the uh, Roman apartments. Darn. I'll just show it to you afterwards. I have a slide here of, of these Roman villas. There's four or five different sets that have been uncovered in the last 200 years. And they are small, tiny rental apartments circa the first century. And so you can see the kind of space possibly that, that Paul lived in. Just this little nook, not much bigger, not any bigger than our, than our church kitchen area back there. Two little rooms. And that would have been enough, you know, in those times. Questions? I hope that's, I hope you don't listen to all that tonight and just say, oh, that's just so tedious. Uh, That is eight chapters, eight full chapters of the book of Acts. And again, you know Luke is back in charge of writing because of the amount of detail. Uh, we, we, we get the whole third missionary journey in like 10 verses because Luke's not there. We get this, it takes eight chapters because Luke is all about pouring in, in those details. I don't think I mentioned this. It would be, yes, Jay, go ahead. By birth. Right. His parents somehow became Roman citizens. That's how it was transferred. So we don't know how. We're not told how. Uh, Tarsus was a multicultural, important city. Maybe his father purchased that citizenship. There's only three ways you can get citizenship in ancient Rome. You paid for it, a large price. You were born a citizen. Or you acquired citizenship by some kind of honor. Uh, if you serve the empire well in some way, then, you know, Caesar's courts may give you citizenship because of your accomplishment. So maybe his father, maybe your grandfather did something extraordinary. We don't know. Thanks for coming tonight. You're dismissed.